two, three, four. In this podcast, you will only hear Knights of Vader, Knights of Vader, includes but is not led to who talk of Star Wars, not Reagans. We can't truly prepare for the jump that follows this song, but hey, we give it a try. So here's the Knights of Vader. Crystal Fox reports they are divided. For equal sequel, hate and love they fight I know that we are just musicians hired. And their time is up, so here's the Knights of Vader. Most impressive. A big thank you to An Inspiriority Complex for providing our theme song. It is May the 4th, 2021. My name is Zach Weber, and joining me today is Serrano. I think that's me, and I'm glad to be here. I, I, except I want to get out at the same time. <laughs> exactly. You, you deliberately went here, and then you immediately want to get out, despite the fact that your domestic circumstance has not changed at all. I also ran here. After the guy uh, shoots himself in the car, I just ran right here. <laughs> <laughs> no, Rob, you went to pee. You went, yes. You, you... <laughs> Fair. All right. And also we have Dominguez. We're going to need a bigger truck. <laughs> well played. Yes, folks. It is my least favorite day of the year being a Star Wars fan. It is Star Wars May the 4th, or as I disaffectionately call it, Star Wars Bandwagon Day. It is the day where all the normies come out of the woodwork and pretend they're Star Wars fans because Lucasfilm has somehow duped the internet and internet culture into thinking that just because a day of the year sounds like a Star Wars catchphrase, that you're a Star Wars fan because you bought a ticket to see The Force Awakens in 2015. I might sound jaded. But that's because I am. So, as always, in our May the 4th annual series, we find something tangentially related to Star Wars, but not about Star Wars to discuss. Last year, we talked about Eraserhead. In 2019, we talked about Meet Joe Black, infamously in one of the possibly greatest conversations Rob and I have ever had about anything. <laughs> um 2018, I don't even remember what we did. In 2017, we didn't do anything because the podcast just started. Happy four-year anniversary to Knights of Vader. Uh, but that being said, because the title of this episode will not give away what we're actually talking about, I feel only Rob could do it justice. Rob, what are we talking about this May the 4th? Uh, it is a 1977 film that came out in the shadow of Star's War, and it is called, or I should I should say, before I say the real title, which I don't like, it should be called Roy Scheider and the Sorcerer's Sticks. That's what I landed on as what the appropriate title for this movie should have been. What do we think? Or, if you don't like that one, guys, what about this? Boom Goes the Dynamite. That's my backup alternate title. <laughs> That's what we're discussing this May the 4th. And I have to say, Zach, I know Knights of Vader is, I don't get as much pull as I do in Cinemodities, but I'm very upset that when you recruited me for this discussion, that we are not talking about Red Tails. When are we going to do Red Tails? <laughs> That is too on the nose. Like that's like okay, red tails. Okay. Red problem is that red tails. Like I I saw that once, and like other than the fact that like it's kind of a subpar film, like on a directing level, there's not much to really like. Okay, I'm not gonna say anymore because like I feel I feel we could have a fun conversation about that, 
But, like, I also think that, like, in today's, like, cultural, just, like, weird what's going on, that is also a pitfall. I, sure. I think there's a reason why, like, if you go back to reviews of that film, like, in 2012, people, like, just, like, like lambasted that film. And I think if that film came out today, no one would be allowed to say anything bad about it. They'd say, like, it's, it has, it's well-intentioned, but it just doesn't meet the lofty expectations, it, it, like, its intentions set. And it's just like, oh, God, it's a bad movie, everybody. Just suck it up. Like, like I, I have uh, never seen it, but I do want to talk about it because it is a, a George Lucas-directed film, no matter what anybody says. <laughs> it's, oh, my God. Chris could probably tell you more about that rumor than probably I could. Oh, Chris, you dig Red Tails? Is that your favorite it's, movie? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I, I, like, I would tend to believe that uh like rob that he had a lot more control than he would probably like people to believe after the fact he apparently did a like second unit and he like would step in when uh, i forget the director of that um like wasn't available or like he wasn't like on set he would like set it like, like sit in like well you know i recently heard a a uh, first-hand account from from the ewoks caravan of courage set from star eric walker where he said that on the days Lucas was directing him, filling in for the the primary director, uh, the, the for the first day Lucas was working, the call sheet said directed by George Lucas, and he <laughs> shut that down like immediately, and somebody got in trouble. So like the call sheet no longer reflected the fact that he was directing from that point forward for a few weeks. Actually, you want here? No, like, speaking of which, just like Lucas like directing things like post Jedi. Like, Rob, I finally watched, like, Return to Oz. Okay. It was directed by Walter Murch. And I'd heard that, like, because Disney basically fired Walter Murch off the film. And it wasn't until, like, Spielberg, like, Coppola and Lucas, like, stuck up for him. And at one point, like, Lucas even said, like, if something, something doesn't happen with Walter Murch, I will complete the film. And that was, like, Disney's, like, big thing. Like, oh, crap, like, we can get, like... Like George Lucas, the director. This is like, yeah, this is like 80, I got like 82, 83. And so it was like, oh man, like, like if he screws the pooch, like we can say it's like that George Lucas is directing this movie for us. Um, just, just a weird little side note, but still, like Lucas was doing some weird stuff like post Jedi. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. I think I've succeeded. Uh, we are now going to talk about George Lucas directing for the rest of this episode. <laughs> Hey, Rob, just be happy you're not having to sit in front of like a gas station pump at midnight watching The Bad Batch this evening. Rob just, <laughs> Rob just caused us to talk about Star Wars more than Zach or I did, so that's it. <laughs> Fair. Oh, God. But yes, we are talking about the 1977 film Sorcerer, directed by William Friedkin, known for The Exorcist and The French Connection. And really, like he did, he's done a bunch of things though, but those will always be his main films. Like that, that will always be the like two that everybody discusses. Oh, yeah. And it, it, it should be said that this is the movie that follows those two directly, which is pretty crazy to think about. You know, you get the French Connection and the Exorcist are so wildly popular and well received. And then uh, it seems like from my research, Sorcerer at the time of its release it doesn't just lose money or potentially lose money because it's in the shadow of star Wars, but it is critically reviled. I mean, I want to read this quote that I found because we'll get into our thoughts on this movie, 
which are different, my thoughts at least, are different from the critical response. But one of the quotes I found was from John Simon in a review in 1977 where he said that Friedkin spent $21 million to perpetuate a film that could be usefully studied in courses on how to not make movies. And I'm like, that is incredibly harsh. <laughs> Whoa. But that's like, but that's the thing now. Like, okay, real quick, because like this would be a, if you listen to Cinemodis, obviously if Rob and I are involved, we're just this kind of like what instinctually get like into that groove when it comes to like talk discussing a movie. But like for those of you who haven't seen this film, it's essentially about four different men who commit some sort of crime, have to kind of escape, go off the grid. They go to an unnamed country in South America, living kind of just like what in a hellhole. Until there's an oil field in one of the what wells like explodes because of a terrorist attack. And the only way to put out the fire is through explosives. Going back to the whole saying, how do you put out an oil fire by setting up an even bigger fire right next to it, next to it so it sucks the oxygen out of it. Um, the thing is that the only way to create this big fire is through nitroglycerin that's on the other side of the jungle. But because it has not been rotated regularly, it has to be transported over basically uneven terrain. And four, these four uh, men become drivers that have to traverse the jungle and have to go through hurdle after hurdle, obstacle after obstacle without setting off the nitroglycerin. And that is essentially the plot of the movie without giving anything away. Um, that's, is there anything else you two want to add to that synopsis? Or is that pretty much cover it? No, I think that's good. I mean, it's a... Uh... It's uh, they have to move wet dynamite across the jungle, um, which is always a fun thing to talk about in storytelling. So much so that they did it in the season one finale of Lost. Did you know that, Zach? They have to move wet dynamite in the end of the first season of Lost. <laughs> I did not, Rob. I did not. And it was also from what in my research for this, the movie Vertical Limit that came out in 2001. Check out the Cinemodies Fort Year um, that apparently or no, that came out in 2000. Uh, my bad. Uh, it well, like I said, it's 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 the very similar plot, but instead of the jungle, it's like snow and ice. Okay, okay. No, I mean, I, it's a it's a great little uh, exercise in tension. If you know that you're moving something, that if you if you jostle it too much, it'll just blow you all away. It's a it's a, it makes for a good little uh, tense story, I have to say. And this movie delivers on that. Okay, so I think like we'll go around the room. Uh, well, like I said, this is where we're kind of going to like like Cinemani's level discussion. Rob, do you have any context for this movie? Uh, I didn't really know about this movie until I think you mentioned it to me, Zach. And I think you mentioned, I forget what context you mentioned it to me in, but I was like, okay, another thing to just throw on the list. And I eventually found a copy of it. And I, I watched it for the first time maybe a few months ago. And I enjoyed it. I definitely, you know, like I already said, love this type of setup. And I like what I think the movie's going for, which I'm sure we'll get into more of. And then when Zach was like, uh, oh, we're doing May the 4th nonsense. And I was like, Red Tails? He was like, no, Sorcerer. And I was like, okay, I guess that's a good a good second thing to go to if we're not going to do Red Tails, finally. So that's really it. I, I don't didn't really know much about this movie until maybe a few months ago. And uh, now it's uh, become... One of the ones I think very highly of, not just because it's in my you know recent memory, but because I, I think it's thoroughly enjoyable. All right, Chris, what is your history with this film? My history with this film is absolutely none, which tells me that Star Wars is still causing this to be an unknown film. <laughs> I, you know, I look for stuff like this. This is the kind of this is the kind of thing I, tr I try to watch when I'm when I'm looking for a movie to watch on the weekend you know I, something that I that I haven't seen before and 
something from a decade that is not the most recent two. <laughs> so, you know, this is, it was great. And I wonder how, how I've not experienced it before. I well, it. I'm glad you brought that up, Chris, because, okay, this is my context. Do you have a ticket folks. stub for this movie, Zach? <laughs> no, Rob, nobody <laughs> has a ticket stub to this. You try to go see this movie in 1977, they're like, get out. This is now Star Wars now. It's like that. Uh, what was that? Oh, God, the Simpsons gag where, like, Bart goes to get his ears pierced. And he's, like, walking into the mall and, like, all the shops are Starbucks. And then, yeah. like, he tries to get his ears pierced. And they're like, you better get it done quick because it becomes Starbucks in, like, 20 minutes. That's that's essentially what happens if you want to go see Sorcerer in 1977. You got halfway through the film and the projection just like turned off. It's like, what's happening? And so they turn it back on and it's like halfway through the trench run on, on the Death Star. <laughs> um, no, so like this was back in 2000, I want to say early 2014. Like I saw the poster, like the movie poster for this. And it's just like the truck on the like like rope bridge it says sorcerer and i'm like this is cool looking as rob can tell you there's been a series like on the cinemati spreadsheet called like what did it say like killer killer vehicle series oh yeah so killer cars or killer cars i know yeah. there's i know there's that there's another thing that you put in the cinemati spreadsheet that seems to be almost identical just called toyota thon <laughs> yeah, well, okay, I think what happened was I rebranded the Killer Car series into Toyota Thought. Okay, but I, I think that they both exist separately in the spreadsheet they, still, they probably, if I remember they, correctly. They probably do. I have, I have a couple of tabs in the spreadsheet just to myself. I know um, that when I look at that, I'm, I'm always like, does Zach just want to discuss Toyota commercials for an episode? <laughs> <laughs> it came out in 2001. Um, but no, so like I saw the poster. I'm like, what is this? This poster looks amazing. What is this movie about? And I found like William Friedkin directed this like in the 70s. I'm like, what is going on? So like I'm like, OK, because Rob can tell you, like I am a big physical media person. I'm like, OK, I want a DVD. And like the DVD was like out of print for like years and i'm just like like what like and like there really was like no information on this movie like it was pretty much non-existent and then like i think like i in like like a month i think the reason why the poster like trickled into like my line of vision was that like they were re they were releasing it on blu-ray uh blu-ray remastered like sometime in early 2014 and i'm like oh great and then like the Blu-ray like sold out like instantaneously because they didn't make they hardly made any copies because they severely underestimated demand. So like the Blu-ray became like this like like God, like a hundred dollar Blu-ray. And I'm like, okay, I still want to see this movie though. But the problem is that like the DVD was only ever released in pan and scan. Mm. If anybody knows about pan and scan, it's like something even more egregious and full screen. It's essentially like 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 an artificial way of the movie like zooming in on certain moments and i'm just like oh god this is just oh god like this the thought of that just disgusts me and so i'm like i guess i'm not watching this but like over time like i think i i think i did i got like a copy from the library and just i just like i didn't really enjoy it because i'm just like okay i'm watching this though but i feel like i'm watching such a weird version of it um but then a couple years later it got released on it got re-released again on Blu-ray and I immediately like picked it up. I think it was like fifteen dollars. And like I like I would go back and like I think I've only revisited this film a couple of times. I think I watched it last year for the first time since 2014. But it's such a strange little movie. And not because it was caught in the wake of Star Wars. I think regardless, even if this film was like released in like 76. I think this film was always going to be an anomaly. Uh, like the thing that probably all of you have seen, and even like in Chris's minimal amount of research, is that like when you think of like 
a movie directed by William Freakin. His direct follow-up to The Actress is called Sorcerer. And it's got that really cool-looking font. You're like, oh, man, like this is going to be fun. And you watch, and it's like this really weird, like, like two-hour nihilistic film about like, like the scourge of the earth living like in the pits of hell, like on Earth. And I'm like, and it's like, oh, oh, oh okay. Yeah, this like, movie it, might be the complete antithesis of fun. Uh, I don't think anything in the movie is like fun. It doesn't look like it was fun to make. It looked like absolute hell for our characters or in our actors and stuff like that. <laughs> well, that's the thing is like the more I kept like, cause there's not a lot of in-depth like information on this movie. Pretty much everything comes from Will, like William Friedkin's like autobiography yep. called like the Friedkin connection where he basically just like kind of recounts like this film, like making it was a nightmare. And like, it was another one of those examples, like whether it be apocalypse now jaws or everything that could go wrong, did go wrong. Um, the fact that like they pretty much couldn't get any actor they wanted and every actor in this film is like, there's something like their fourth, fifth or sixth, like best choice. Um, and, and like stuff like that, the fact that like they tried doing like the the famous truck sequence and they had to like rebuild it like twice. And every single time they did it, like the river they were trying to use dried up to the point where like the locals tried killing them because they thought the production was cursed. Yep. Like like all these sort of things. And like they had to bring in like an arsonist from New York City to blow up a tree. Oh, uh, yeah, I found that as well. I did. I spent way too much time looking into Marvin the Torch after reading that. <laughs> Exactly. It's like you're telling me no one can figure out how to blow up a tree. I'm like, you need a renowned arsonist. I think it was like the amount of people that didn't get malaria during this shooting you could count on one hand from what I read as well. <laughs> exactly. The fact that like William Friedkin like was like mad at Roy Scheider and Roy Scheider hated hated William Friedkin for not giving him a role in The Exorcist. Yep. Like like pretty much like it was just one of those movies that like it was kind of amazing that like after a while you wonder like how like why did this get made? It was like it's like why like like what like what is the meaning of this film? And this film has a pretty straightforward message, in that like it's just like oh nothing matters, like like nothing literally matters. Like well, everything everything's gonna lead you to the same point. Okay, I kind I I sort of agree with that, but on some level, do you, and I mean we're sort of skipping. If we're gonna say nothing matters, we're skipping pretty much to the end right like but um, a big thank you to Anna Superiority Complex. yeah but uh but 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 you know but I, I I was having a hard time sort of deciding whether whether um Friedkin's trying to say that this is this is sort of a karma a result of their past lives that is why they're ending up this way or whether it's just that's how everything ends up I that's interesting, but I don't know because like the big thing in like like thinking about this movie and what I was able to read was that like oh it's basically the tale of Sisyphus, which we've talked about a lot on Cinemodies, where it's just like okay, like you can keep doing things, like you can try as hard as you want. At the end of the day, the boulder is always going to roll back down the hill. Like there's a lot of like like futility being a big word to use when discussing this film's themes. Yeah, well, I, I definitely got like a, some of those. I I took it more as. Uh, that, you know, life or fate or, you know, the path your life goes, you don't really have any control over it, you know, so I, I get what you're saying with the boulder rolling down on it, but I took it more as, you know, um, to, to use, you know, the, the terms of this movie and the setting in this movie, the dynamite doesn't care what you've done or what you're going to do, where you've been or where you're going. The dynamite is just dynamite as some, you know. Uh, some metaphor for or analog for like the memoryless memoryless property that life has 
And and at some sense, I think the movie doesn't hit it a lot, but the more of the prologue stuff gets at this idea that the complexity of life is almost ironic when compared to how little the world actually cares about you. I, I do have a lot to say about the meaning of this movie. That's why I, I enjoyed it as much as I did, for sure, um, other than the just complete tension of a lot of the last you know hour of the movie. So I was I was curious what you guys thought about um, the 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 opening where you where you do get these uh, four separate stories. I heard there's a European cut where they sort of like peppered in the backstories throughout at what they thought were relevant points just because there was a this idea that they didn't get to the the trucks until the halfway point of the film. And that doesn't really, that didn't work from their perspective. And um, Friedkin, of course, was into the American edit. And I think he made some quotes saying that it's like the only film of his that he can watch because it actually came out almost exactly the way as intended, which is like, it's crazy to hear that kind of a quote from him, especially about a movie that I just learned about a couple days ago. I read that about that edit as well, and I think that if if I saw that version, I would have disliked this movie much, much more. Because I've I've never seen that version. I don't know where you'd even find that version. Right. But it's it's kind of like I think that they would defeat the whole point of the movie. And of course, I'm saying this where I watched it and then I researched about it. But right, I but like the you... whole fact that you know all the stuff happens at the beginning. Like we're watching this movie pretty much in you know. The order of events that we see in this movie are how our characters are experiencing them. And I think that if we had something where it's like, oh, we're going to get a flashback of of Dominguez or of any of our four characters, maybe even Marquez before he gets killed, it, it it's going to say like, oh, there's some implicit notion to the audience that that flashback happening there means something in context of what's going on now. And I think that defeats right. the point of the movie where it's like, no, the dynamite does not care about you know what their history was the dynamite's going to blow up regardless of if they were saints or sinners or anything like that so i like the fact that we just get all this set up right at the beginning it's front loaded and then we're just in the jungle for the rest of the movie yeah i i, I, I guess uh, go ahead oh well, I was, yeah sorry chris go ahead i was just gonna i, I was just gonna say um i i totally agree because i think when you see moments like um when you see uh Sereno, I think we're going to he's going to be called the the French guy. Uh, when you see him first uh, down there in South America working on the oil fields and he's hoisting up this big piece of pipe and like oil spraying him in the face and he just looks like he's literally having like the worst possible time. I think the the contrast of like how miserable he looks at that moment, you'd lose all of that if you didn't see the life he was leading before eating lobster and like pushing numbers around, right? So oh, I think yeah. there's just even the misery visible on his face and that one scene makes front loading all the backstory at the beginning worth it yes and i i love that uh the opening of our french character when he's you know uh accused of fraud and for most of his prologue he's just like we can get out of this you know call whoever we need to call to get out of this like he is so convinced that he can get away with his crime and then he realizes that he can't and it just it causes his whole life to crumble like he has to leave his wife at the restaurant i i totally agree with you there chris i do have to say though in that prologue of the french uh the frenchman when he leaves the restaurant talks to the guy and he's like oh you got to call him again you got to get us out of this guy goes to his car shoots himself when when we see him like first run up to the car you see the blood that's pretty much all the way down the back windshield 
he goes back into the restaurant to tell the maitre d' or whatever to tell his wife he had to leave. When he goes back out, the blood is no longer as far down as it was. It's back up. So this movie's unwatchable. They didn't keep the continuity with the blood. Like, how did blood re- recede? So this movie is almost unwatchable for that, but I'll, I'll give it a pass. <laughs> didn't notice it at all. Zero, zero out of five stars unsubscribe. Yes. <laughs> Check but out I mean, my he, Letterboxd review for but, just a scathing review of that scene. <laughs> he's clearly got the best backstory out of the four, in my opinion. Uh, like, the, oh, the first guy, the first guy has, like, a scene that you just keep wondering what happened for 20 minutes. Like the assassin, yeah. he just kills a guy and then you don't, and it's, you don't, you, it's a very wide shot where you even see him. So it's almost like so disconnected until he turns up again later. And even when he, this assassin does turn up again later, he has the least to do out of all these guys for the rest of the movie, I think. Well, okay. This is the thing. And like to go back to you guys were saying with like the prologues and the like international edit, I would have loved to have seen that because, like, I find every single character's motivation in this film dumb. Like, to me, this is, like, the best TV movie ever made. <laughs> like, this is something, like, like I think about this, and I don't know, maybe it's because it just has very cool-looking vehicles, but I think of the Steven Spielberg film Duel, which was also a TV movie. And I remember just being, and just, like, as I was rewatching, just being, like, everybody in this movie is dumb. Every character is just like frustrating. And because like in like this is why I prefer the idea of like having the film begin like in the village and then like we like we go back and have like flashbacks explaining as to why they're there. Because like Hitman Man, like he literally has like a 30 second prologue and it's like okay, like he's a hitman doing his job, but for some reason he has to go on the run. Never explained. And then we have Palestinian terrorist man. Where it's like, okay, like, sure, like, I get him going on the run, but at the same time, though, is that, like, he's always going to be, like, sought after. Like, the moment he leaves there, his his life is essentially over. And then you have Serrano, who, like, I agree with you guys, is the most interesting character in the film, and I wish he was our protagonist, because Roy Schneider is basically just, like, a husk of a character. And it's like, okay, like he's the genuinely interesting character, Serrano. Or it's like, okay, I, but at the same time, I'm like, so if he gets his way out of this village, he'll just be immediately arrested for his crimes when he goes back to France. I'm like, why did any of them go to this village? The moment they leave, their lives are over. Like, the, and even Roy Schneider, it's like, oh, like, like there's like a, a heist gone, I don't know if it's gone wrong, where they rob like a church parish. And, like, one of the guys shoots the priest in the leg, and there's a car accident, and Roy Schneider's the only one who survives. And I'm just like, okay, like, and it's like, oh, guilt by association, like, he never carries a gun. And it's like, he has, like, his, like, his buddy, like, like tells him, like, you have to go to this, like, desolate place, and you'll be safe. And yet everyone's just like, oh, man, we have to get out of here, we have to get out of here. Well, you chose to go here because it's the only place, like, you are so far removed from society no one will come looking for you here. And that's what I don't get. Like, it makes no sense for any of these characters to want to, like, escape. And then, like, once, like, they get in the trucks and they're, like, like going on their little, like, journey, both, like, Palestinian terrorist man and hitman want no parts of this the moment they get involved, even though they deliberately sought to do this. And I'm just like, the character motivations just, like, like, like drives me insane. Or am Doesn't I like it, out of bounds here? I, I think the, I think it I think the part that you're not factoring in is like 
for for a person like that who is like would find themselves in that situation in the first place um it's you, you, i think there there's just it's plausible that if you were to experience how terrible it actually is in that environment after a few months years however long it is for each of them right i think that any whether it's whether it's 40 grand and a chance to get a fake id and just move one country over just to shuffle the cards a little bit it's literally hell so let's try something something else because you know they're getting harassed by the local government they're making no money working extremely hard who knows how long they've been there like you're saying they have no pro they have even uh Cyrano, he has he has he has someone to go back to but doesn't really because like he's the most he like his identity is like fully known to the people who are looking for him so like you said i just think it's there it's there's just so destitute that they're just grabbing at whatever they can and it it i think someone in that situation would take an opportunity that came their way well i i get that though but their lives are over regardless either they like like what Dwell in misery in this like hellhole of a town for the rest of their lives, or they leave the weird sanctuary they have and are immediately like picked up on. Like, there's a reason why they go here is because it's so off the grid. If they leave here, they're back on the grid, and someone will find them. And that's what's essentially spoiler alert happens to Roy Schneider's character is that he gets noticed because of what happens and they track him down. I see I see what you're saying, Zach, and I have to agree with you completely on the terrorist character because his prologue, at least from what I gathered, the prologue implies that all the other terrorists get caught and he's like the one that escapes. And so I have no idea where he's going to go. I think the hitman character not having any backstory, like like you said, his 20 second prologue of just he he hasn't he commits an assassination and then he's the only one that, you know, seems to get to this place um, the, wherever they are in the jungle, the name of the town, I don't remember. Um, he's the one who comes there on the plane. He bribes like a customs person to, to be there and things like that. He seems to be there by choice almost. Um, the, the Frenchman seems like the one who's just kind of like, oh man, like what Chris said, I agree with him there where it's like, oh, this, this could be better type of thing. Maybe there's something better out there. Like grass is always greener. I do for Roy Scheider's character though. I have to say that one makes more sense to me that he just wants money and wants to go somewhere because his prologue sets up when he talks to his friend that says he has to get out of town. He has like no money. And the friend just says, go to this airport, talk to this specific person in customs, and he's going to send you somewhere. So it definitely seems to me that Roy Scheider would be the one who's like, oh, I was put here because I had no other choice. I had no money, and this was where I was sent. If I had more money and a fake ID, I could at least choose where I'm going to be. So I'm kind of like in okay. between what both of Fair. you guys said. Um, the 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 hitman not having a backstory, though, I absolutely love – because we don't really know anything about him. We don't even know like why he kills Marquez, and he's just like, okay, I'm going on this dynamite mission with you guys now. I, I like that because I think it adds to, like I said before, the dynamite doesn't care about any of these people. There's something also about like how even when people start relationships, when they meet each other for the first time, they have some form of memorylessness. Like We know that the hitman is a person, he has some history, but we don't know anything about it. It's like when you meet someone for the first time, you know that they have a history, but you don't know anything about it, and everything kind of comes down to first impressions. So I took his kind of shell of a character to tie in more to the theme of the movie. But I, I, I do think Roy Scheider is definitely fleshed out in that, like, he is here by, he had one option, now he wants more options. 
That's a sure. great point. It's pr- it's probably by design that the uh, that and I don't know about you guys when you you probably don't um, Zach you probably don't remember when you first watched this but there like I do remember thinking maybe the the when it, when the hitman did turn up again I would do remember thinking maybe someone because it didn't show anything befall him in his brief prologue maybe someone sent him there after one of the other three. Yeah, that that's what I was thinking. And the Hitman's prologue is like the very beginning of the movie. I think that comes right after the um, the title card. And he commits whatever assassination he's doing in Veracruz. There is a line later on in the movie about Veracruz, but it seems to have nothing to do with the prologue where someone's like, oh, Veracruz is like nice this time of year. And I was like, maybe there's going to like be more given to us about that assassination. But then it never comes up. So I was guided into thinking it had more to do with the, um, you know, this kind of, you know, we don't know anything or, or life doesn't care about these things to some extent. I exactly I agree with you on Roy Schneider's character. Like that's fair enough. That like he was just dealt a bad hand and he's just trying to dig his way out of it though. But the other three though, like it makes like like again, it's it's the idea that like why are they like Serrano, like the moment he like, he wants to like I don't know, but like there's no character motivation for the other three then. Is like what is their goal? What do they want to accomplish like in the sense of like why do they want to leave the sanctuary other than just like it's miserable? Is is that what it just is? It's just misery. And yeah, like, okay, I, I think it comes down to that to an extent. But like I said, I agree with you completely on the terrorist character. That just seems to be like, I have no idea where that terrorist would go. He doesn't seem to have. Because I mean, in the Jerusalem prologue, they show. Well, one, I have to say, I'm very, very upset by their planning. They they leave the bag and they blow up whatever in Jerusalem, and then they go back to their like safe house to pack. And I'm like, you couldn't pack beforehand? And they're looking at a map like, where should we go? And it's like amateur hour over there. But I think everybody <laughs> else gets captured. He has no other terrorist friends to go meet up with or anything. So that's the one I'm totally with you, Zach. I'm like, what's this character going to do? There's a reason certain people end up in these jobs. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, was I- my note, amateur hour about the terrorists. I was just like, the, the officials find them immediately. They're packing. They're looking at the map like they've never seen a map before. And I'm like, any amount of planning would have been good. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like I said, that's just one of those things where like, the whole time I was just kind of like, I was just frustrated with the characters. That was kind of, that's kind of my biggest complaint because this film, because that's the thing that's strange about this film is that like, there's a reason why this film is not remembered. Sure. And I don't think there's really like anything like, like it's entertaining, but I don't think it's memorable. And I think it's also a very frustrating, like very subconsciously frustrating movie because there's really nothing to latch on to on an emotional level. Because like oh, even sure. and that's the thing, like, like basically nobody's plights in this are even slightly relatable. Like that's the thing. Like there is no like audience surrogate character to be like, okay, like this is someone I can relate to. And all the characters are stoic or like genuinely like are like genuine sociopaths. And I think it creates this distance, which is probably intentional. Like between the characters and the audience. And I think that's the reason why. Like that's why when I say like the character motivations are so frustrating. There's nobody making moves in this movie where like the audience is like, okay, like I want like think about at the end of the day, the only reason why you root for Roy Schneider is because he's basically like like Chief Brody. That's the (laughs) only reason why you root for him as a character, because you're basically just like extrapolating his character from Jaws. A couple times as I was watching this, I'm like, oh man, watch out, Chief Brody. Watch out. 
Like there's 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 the uh, oh god like the freedom fighters they go shoot you, they want your Vienna sausages yes. and Wonder Bread. So and yeah, I, of, of course Roy Scheider is best known and will always be best known for Jaws, uh, but I will always think of him as Doctor Benway from Naked Lunch. He is great in that movie, and Naked Lunch is also a movie I love that should get more recognition. But there is a part a part at the very end of Naked Lunch where. Like there's this woman like chomping a cigar with a machine gun and she like takes her clothes off and then rips her skin off. And it's this big prosthetic suit. And it turns out to be Roy Scheider underneath it. And he just screams his name. Like imagine Roy Scheider ripping off like a woman's suit and then going Benway. It's the craziest thing. And it's wonderful. Everybody check out that scene or that whole movie. <laughs> That's Cronenberg, right? Yes. Yes. Benway. <laughs> And he rips off the suit because, like I said, the woman has a cigar. He rips off the suit so that he keeps his cigar in his mouth as he rips off the suit. It's wonderful. So that that's Roy Scheider to me. And uh, and he's he's also good in this movie. But I agree with you, Zach. There's there's it probably is intentional. This disconnect between these characters and the audience, because then the one time that there's some, you know, uh, maybe highlight or some empathy is attempt to be drawn out. It's when the Frenchman and the Jerusalem terrorists are talking and they're like, oh, this is like my family. This is the time it is in France. My watch gave me this. My watch gave me this wife. My wife gave me this watch. And then boom goes the dynamite because the dynamite doesn't care. And in some sense, I think he's saying, freaking saying, we shouldn't really care either. You know That's what I mean? I would love to see that that scene uh, re-edited as a uh, do not text and drive uh, PSA. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they do go if they just take out the little tire popping thing, it could be like, oh, I'm looking at my watch. So I went off the rails. <laughs> Don't look at your Apple watch and drive. That is the point of this. That's good. I like that. <laughs> this still makes more in like licensing from like an Apple commercial than it did in its entire theatrical. And run. like, did, <laughs> did you guys also find the Coca-Cola branding very heavy handed? The, yeah, it's definitely noticeable. I do have to say I really like uh, I think it's when they when we're first in the jungle town, there's the little shot of Roy Scheider like at the bar and he looks at the Coca-Cola ad and he like it starts at the woman's face and then it goes to the woman's lower body and then it goes to the Coca-Cola thing. I thought that was really cool. It is a very, you know, ad centric, but I like that Roy Scheider's like, oh, yeah, looking at this woman and then the Coca-Cola bottle. He's like, I'll take anything right now. Right. There's like there's no less than three separate instances of a Coca-Cola bottle, which like perfectly lands label facing camera <laughs> like different yep. scenes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like I said, like I think like, I agree with you guys on the Roy Schneider part. In fact, like he's just longing for basically what he was used to in the life he once had. But like, I just wish like we we would have gotten a little bit more focus on that. Like, other than this, like this really like kind of just like dumb prologue where like he's just kind of just like he's the driver for this like like oh god like heist if you can mm -hmm. call it that. Mm -hmm. Like that's the thing though. Like we spent we spend so little time with him though. Like all we basically like the most amount of like time we get of him in that prologue is once he's talking to his buddy, telling him to like go to the pier. Like yeah, someone yeah. will sit there help you. Like I wish we could have taken that like robbery scene and done something differently with it. Yeah, I I know what you're saying. I I think like, like just... Serrano, this focus more like exclusively sure. on him. 
Sure. But I, I do have to say, I absolutely love the shot when they're, I, I guess technically Roy Scheider and the crew are knocking over a mob church. Like I've heard of mob banks and stuff like that, but this is a mob church, it seems. Uh, and there's a great shot because while they're, you know, doing this heist, there's a wedding going on and we get a shot of the oh. bride <laughs> at the altar with a black eye. And I'm like, that is an interesting visual. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what, that's what I mean, though. It's like, what is this movie trying to say? Like, that is a very, very loud statement. Yes. And I'm like, what? but this is not the movie for that, though. Well, you know, that's a yeah, I, I really was thinking a lot about that, too, because when you when you do a black eye at the altar in a movie, so we're going. So this is a make a black eye produced by makeup. But if this were reality, it would be covered up by makeup. But if you produced it and then covered it up by makeup, you wouldn't see it at all. Or it would just I look didn't like even a mess. think about that. That's a really good point. I didn't even think about that. So it's almost maybe we should assume that this bride is wearing it like a badge of honor. <laughs> they don't trade. Maybe at the mob. It's a mob church. I have no experience with a mob church. Maybe instead of exchanging rings, they punch each other in the face when they have to say I do or something. <laughs> Well, that way, you know, it's it, the um, the uh, it doesn't matter that the the congregation can't see up close the signing of the documents like the arrangements, like fully understood to the whole audience that way. <laughs> you may now hit the bride. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, but, you know, it, it would have. But obviously, you know, like having having been at, uh, of course, from personal experience, been in the audience at many weddings where the black eye was covered up with makeup. It seemed a little <laughs> bit weird. Oh, it seems a little dark bit. Turn. It's took a dark turn. You no, know, but you know, it just seems strange because it's like, like you, you know, know <laughs> they would have they done that, but it's cool. That it's it, it, it's just like, what would it have looked like? It's a hard effect to pull off. Yeah. But, yeah. but, but you know, th that whole that whole sequence where you get uh, where you get uh, Dominguez's backstory, I think the, the reason I think this, I feel like I should have known about this movie is like you're totally right about. It's it's you don't have a strong emotional connection to any of these guys. You don't really root for any of them. And in the end, none of them really succeed. But um, just I think just from a production design and cinematography standpoint, there's so much to love here. That's like that when I was watching it, I was like genuinely like baffled at how they accomplished some of these things. Um, oh, you know, yeah. you, you just have like just the 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 just the basic stuff is like. Car, actual explosions at least five or six in the whole movie cars actually flipping the stuff that would actually genuinely possibly hurt or injure someone horribly while filming good stuff like that and then on top of that you have just some like once they finally get down to south america there's just there's stuff like there's a pov shot from one of the trucks just right after they head out that really looks like it was close to running over some kids like these kids just barely get out of the way yep. in time and like you can tell that whatever that camera rig was it got very close to them and then like we have to spend a little little bit of time talking about the the storm over the bridge because I don't know about you guys, but when I was when I was watching it, there's some wide shots there where it's like you just can't, um, especially especially just in that environment, you can't imagine. It, it's not about the bridge. It's not about the truck. It, of course, the bridge is probably extremely reinforced and it's decked out to look really decrepit. But like just the way all the the amount of rain and the way all the trees are just 
violently shaking in a massive area on some of these wide shots. I was just genuinely confused how they could have accomplished this. And I mean, you guys might have looked into it, but they were actually using helicopters to blow the trees like that. Yeah. Which, which like if you just think about that for a second, like like you can't th- shoot those things. Uh, like how many did you need? At least two for the shots I saw. And and you can't just send them up and down every five minutes. So the amount of time those things are just hovering super close to that to get that amount of tree movement while and it was it actually raining because I can't, they can't possibly have a rain machine that big or that high up. So, yes. I guess it was actually raining, right? Like, I don't know. But um, it, it just, when you think about how long those helicopters were probably had to hang out just above where they were shooting for hours, probably, and come down and refuel and do it again. Like, just that sequence alone, seeing, seeing like, how, like, you can't fake that. Like, that's how violent the wind was while they were filming. You can't talk to each other while like, in that kind of wind. That's some impressive stuff. Like, it looks real and the tension feels real because you can tell that it actually sucked to be on set (laughs) yes yeah like i said earlier it did not look fun to make this movie but i have to agree with you chris the first time well both times that i've seen this movie now i am glued to the screen in that like i think it's like it can't be more than 15 minutes that entire suspension bridge set piece it is one of the most visually stimulating things i've ever seen in a movie i am so into all that stuff it is it's it's wonderful it's it's probably my favorite part of the movie and and the whole second hour is just like i said earlier an exercise in tension this is one of the things that i watch and it it kind of breaks the facade of oh i'm watching a movie like i feel like i'm watching that the whole suspension bridge scene and i'm like someone is gonna die like how did i not hear about this movie because they filmed this and someone died on set that's how dangerous it looks yeah, like, well, can, can you believe that other movies killed people and this this didn't? That's amazing. Oh, God, don't get Rob started. Don't get Rob started. I mean, started. you already mentioned the helicopters. <laughs> I know. No, but but you're, but there is something to that where it's like you see, like, and I mean, I almost wish I didn't know that was helicopters because, like, it just, like, it's literally just the way you see these huge trees just getting beat around like crazy while these guys are trying to come across this bridge. And it's like you just, because you know when this movie was made, you know that there's, a, you know that there's only a, they only had a certain amount of, of, of tricks in their back pocket. Like, those trees are actually blowing like that. That sucks. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But getting back to the whole thing, though, like some of just like the moments in this film, like the black eye at the wedding, like there's there's some really wonky shots in this that like I find like inexplicably humorous. Like the black eyes, one of them, where I'm just like, why is this here? I'm like, this is goofy. Another one that I find funny is like when the oil well explodes. And we have like a couple of the workers go running into a little shack. And then the shack explodes. And I'm like, I'm like, that's a comedic shot. Like that is comedy. Having characters run for cover into a structure. Then the structure from the opposite side explodes. Like, like at one point while I was watching this, I expected to like to hear like the SpongeBob, my leg, like in the <laughs> background. Like I expected to hear that. Like, 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 like I said, there's some really goofy moments in this. This feels oh, yeah. like a lot. Like, like, you know, I think this, like, like everything in here might be intentional, 
But I think it's also the hubris of Freakin at the time. Sure. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, one of the ones that stood out to me that I was like giggling at was when they come across the downed tree in their path and Roy Scheider just loses it and he's waist deep in dirty water hacking at tree branches and vines of the machete. And I'm just like, this is I'm like, this is goofy. <laughs> but like even the moment too where we have Hitman Man and like he's like get he's like get the chopping. And then, like, Hitman guy sits there, like, points the gun at him, and, like, Schneider, like, goes, like, what? And mm-hmm. he shoots at him, like, what, two, three times, and he starts laughing? And it's not until the other two show up that, like, that stops. And I'm like, what? what's the point of this? The fact that he's crazy? Like, that he's just, like, I just, I don't get it. Like, there's just so many, like, moments like that. And even, like, we haven't even talked about the editing in this film. And that, like, there's a lot of, like, weird cuts in this. Where like you'll get like you'll have a scene going on and on and on, and then like it'll be more more on the suspenseful tension side, mm-hmm. and like it'll keep going on and on, and then as you're about like ninety five percent of the way through the scene, it'll just end. And yeah. he does that a lot while editing the film, where like you'll have a moment and it'll just cut out, and like probably the most like God the biggest example of this is when we have the terrorist guy. And he like falls into like like what one of the beams breaks and he falls into the water on the bridge and like it cuts the black for what a full second. Yes. And then we go back to Serrano and he's like, Are you there? Are you there? And I get it. It's meant to be t- like tension filmed, which again, this is a very suspenseful film. But like we'll use that very specific type of editing in non-tension filled scenes. And I'm just like, 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 like. I don't get it. Like, like, what was the decision behind this? Like, why were you? It just feels like a lot of just I'm doing this because I want, regardless if it makes sense or if it's consistent. Sure, sure. Yeah, I I know what you're saying. It didn't. Uh, it's it stood out to me that I noticed it, and when you mentioned it, I I think about it more. But I don't know. It didn't um, it didn't bother me too much. I know that's not exactly what you're getting at. I'm not sure where it came from, but it wasn't anything that really took me, me out of the movie. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's well, just it, odd. If you're well, if you were talking about the scene where they're stopped by the tree and um, the assassin and uh, and and Dominguez are the assassin guy looks like seems like he's kind of losing it uh, right until the other two guys show up. Right. And you thought like you're saying you're saying you thought his behavior was kind of weird or like it didn't make sense for him to instantly change his tune when the other two guys showed up. Well, the fact that he's like shooting at Roy Schneider, I'm like, why? Well, I'm I, like- I, I, th- I think it's I like. Uh, to me, that kind of stuff is just like they're illustrating the character profile of these type of criminal guys where it's like as soon as an impasse comes up, they immediately turn to sort of like this fight or flight. I'm going to get out of this and you're not kind of attitude. And then once the, he realizes the other two guys arrive, the dynamic they survived the dynamic sort of changes a little bit. I I think it, he he's not as confident that he can deal with a crazy uh roy schneider once the other two guys show up but that's the thing though like you wouldn't mind like because think about it roy schneider and the hitman for the most part get along it's just in that one moment that there seems to be friction and then it disappears like it's like there's never any friction before that outside of the one point where he's like all right poncho I know your shtick, like, knock it off <laughs> well Dominguez like, he- clearly lost it because like he if he thought that he could even hack like enough uh, trees for like one of those trucks to get around that he's 
clearly un- overestimating the amount of energy a, a person has. <laughs> like you just, he could not, he couldn't have physically cleared that by like using his machete to the point where a truck could get around there. Like not in any reasonable amount of time anyway. So I, it's like, it seemed more obvious to the assassin that the guy was, he lost it and he was at his wits end and he was about to do something crazy. Sure. But again, like this, like the play of that tension where there was no like foundation for it and then it dissipates into nothing. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And so th- it's a quick flash. I don't know if you guys remember it specifically, but at the end when Roy Scheider is absolutely losing his mind and we get all these like double exposure shots and like lightning and stuff like that uh, when he's driving at nighttime. And this is after the hitman has been stabbed or shot or whatever happens to him and so he's like about to die in the truck there's a quick flash of the the hitman in the driver's seat of the truck and roy scheider like grabbing the wheel from him and i read that apparently that was a whole scene that they filmed where the hitman was driving and was like going crazy down a hill like driving too fast or something and roy scheider and them were fighting and that was supposed to happen before the gunshot scene that you're mentioning zach so something was there to establish that it seems the scene that we're talking about but it was left on the cutting room floor and i couldn't find a way to watch that scene or anything i don't know if it exists i don't even know if the copy you have zach has like deleted scenes or anything but i couldn't find anything to actually watch it but it seems like there was something to get at that idea that they ended up just removing that's the thing is that, like there's not a lot of information on this because like, even yeah. on the blu-ray there's no special features at all um like this film was never even i'm pretty sure from what i read this film was never even released on vhs because of like rights issues so this film's never like outside of like the restoration it got almost a decade ago it never has gotten any sort of like meaningful attention. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure if anybody, uh, if you go to the Wikipedia page for sorcerer, which is fairly long, a good chunk of it is about a legal battle between Friedkin and uh, universal and paramount to be able to restore this movie. And it's fairly interesting. I read through it. Um, it when Friedkin like First, the the most interesting part of it, because everybody can read it. The most interesting part, though, is when Friedkin first like started this lawsuit. Um, so it was basically Friedkin v. Universal and Paramount. Friedkin was like, I want the rights to this so I can restore it and re-release it. And Universal and Paramount was like, why are you suing us? We don't own this film. And they were like, we don't know who owns it. And there's a whole rest slew of information that's fairly interesting. But I love that you sue somebody and it's like, you own this and I want it. And they go, do we own that? Can we check on that? <laughs> But that's the thing, though. Like we've talked about it a couple of times. I think it was even like what in Freddy Got Finger, where like the rights are so complicated. Yeah. Like you literally have to hire probably a lawyer and probably spend the ballpark of probably like twenty to thirty grand just to figure out who owns it, and that's yep. not yep. and that's not even to like gain ownership over it. That's just to figure out who is the like like rightful owner. And I know mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure because I know um in the initial Blu-ray release, like there's a little like excerpt from like his autobiography and there's like a little note included being like thanking the fans for like pushing to like get like pushing him to like in, in the studios to like re-release this but yeah i didn't know that like i didn't know like i knew this was a joint venture between two of the studios but at the same time though it's like i even heard stories too that like they looked at like a lot of the footage from this and they're like we're not god like this is a mess and yeah. they basically and they basically like cut its marketing down to nothing so like nobody knew about this film Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Like that was, yeah. And that was the thing. Like, they really, this was a film that was just, I remember even, this was one, like I said, going back to like early 2014, this is like my final like months of college. I remember going to the cinema professors being like, do you know anything about this movie? And they're like, yeah, it's based on like the wages of fear. It's like, it's like a foreign film from like the fifties. And I'm like, okay. They're like, yeah, you should check that out. And I'm like, what? Sorcerer? Like, no, the wages of fear. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm like, why? I'm like, I, this look, I, I just like how this looks they're like, yeah, it's not very good. They're like, you'll get more from the wages of fear. And I remember watching the wages of fear like that summer. And I don't really like that film. Like it's, it's a much more, cause obviously this is based on a book called the wages of fear, mm-hmm. which is a very, very anti-American, like, like perspective in the sense of like, it's like American colonialism or this, like what you said, this film is like sorcerer is very nihilistic. That is its theme that like nothing matters. Like, again, like Rob says, the dynamite, the dynamite doesn't care. It's just it, 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 its job is to go boom and that's it. Whereas the wages of fear is about like just like exploitation of like indigenous people by colonialism. Uh, and that's the thing. I find that boring. That is a very boring message by today's standards, by the last sure. 10 years, by contemporary standards. Um, whereas at least with this. The sorcerer, the idea of like, oh, like I think the biggest like physical manifestation and probably one of the more subtle yet profound moments in the film is when we have Roy Schneider and Serrano arguing over like, oh, should I go? Like, should we go right? Should we go left? Mm -hmm. And yet at the end of the day, they both end up at the same rickety bridge. Yep. Yep. It's that it doesn't. It's like regardless of what you think, we're all going to the final final point. Yeah, yeah. Like Nothing you said, matters. It's our futility. Nothing. Yep. Yeah, and I think that's the thing I find fascinating. But like, like, but there's so many just odd choices in this. Like, it's kind of like the fact that the film is called Sorcerer, and the vehicle that's not even the lead vehicle is the one that's called Sorcerer. <laughs> yes, I did. I did find that strange because before I like even saw this movie, when I was just reading about it for the first time, you know, I read that it was like, oh, Sorcerer is the name of one of the trucks that they drive when I read like the premise of the movie. And then when I finally watch it, I'm like, oh, that that's the truck that blows up eventually. It's not even the truck that makes it, which is a, which is very interesting. Um, and of course, like I said, I do like the title Roy Scheider and the Sorcerer Sticks, but I get Harry Potter hadn't happened in the 70s, so maybe Boom Goes the Dynamite is the better title for this movie. <laughs> well, uh, for, so I did, uh, I heard the the truck, and I did, I saw a different quote from, from Friedkin that said it's called Sorcerer in reference to the Wizard of Fate, which also says to me that it's called Sorcerer for no reason. <laughs> I think, yeah, exactly. I kind of read that same thing, Chris, and that's the whole thing. It's just like it's the Sorcerer of Fate as in just like it's just like this yeah. weird sort of just like, oh, God. Oh, God. It's like the equivalent of like the invisible hand of like the free market. It's still, like, <laughs> which is it's, which it's, is asking a lot for the, the for Joe audience member in 1977. So it's really a weird choice. And I mean, it's cool. It sounds cool. And it fits nicely with that that original theatrical poster you were talking about. But beyond that, it's sort of just like, why is it called that? Yeah. Yeah. Cocaine's I, a I, hell of a drug. Definitely. I would have loved, though, to like hear the lasting legacy of this movie if it had any well it was called uh boom goes the dynamite and people thinking it's like i don't know i i feel like i hear the term boom goes the dynamite in sports like if someone dunks a basketball they're like boom goes the dynamite and you sit down and it's just as confusing as sorcerer where afterwards you're like i get it's about dynamite and it went boom but there wasn't really anything exciting in there <laughs> but, but you know it also it also shows how i'm like 
completely ruined culturally because like the wages of fear, which is like arguably a better title, almost sounds like a dad pun to me. It's like, oh, really? The wages as in the money they're going to make of fear? Like, I, I, I don't know if like, I don't know if I'm just ruined as a person, but I don't <laughs> like that any better. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, maybe I you speaking of the movie. dad thing, do you remember that board game, Don't Wake Daddy, where they had to like move around the board like, quietly in air quotes because it's a board game, so there's no real quietly. Maybe you call this Don't Wake Daddy because you got to move quietly with the dynamite. I like that too. <laughs> uh, okay, first of all, I uh, haven't thought of that game since I saw it as a kid until just this second, which is weird. <laughs> and um, and aside from that though, on the subject of like not not jostling the uh, the the dynamite, um, like the whole sand thing, like is that is that legit? Like I don't know how good of a shock absorber that would be, and I I don't know if I like. I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm convinced that that what they ended up doing would would was a smoother ride than the helicopter ride. I think you know they could have probably set up that helicopter pretty good. Yeah, uh, the the sand. I don't know really understand how that works as a shock absorber because if it's really packed, it's like basically sitting on a flat surface. I don't know. I don't know either, and uh, I am. I am. Uh, it's unfortunate that a lot of my research, I did not look into the question of how to move wet dynamite right? uh, successfully. But, okay, I should have. That's a dumb question. That's a dumb question. But here's a better question: As someone who is completely ignorant to like the sort of industrial uh, details of this plot, like, like obviously I don't know enough about oil fields, but I could not for half of this movie. I was like, how exactly is this uh, nitroglycerin supposed to stop that? fire i don't i just it, i couldn't wrap my head around it and i don't know if this is something everyone knows except me but it just seemed it didn't make any sense to me for and to, like and they don't show it being applied at the end of the movie or anything right so like it's sort of abstract like how you like did I like? Did I miss a clear explanation of how that was supposed to work by one of the characters? No, they don't explain it in the movie. From something Zach you said earlier, you might know more about it. I also did not look into that. The thing that I looked into after watching this movie was when fire hydrants are knocked over, do they really spout water continuously? <laughs> so I, I have some research on that. But Zach, you said something about the removing the oxygen from the flame, right? Yeah, that's essentially what it is. Is it like like when you have an oil fire? The only because you can, obviously you can't douse it with water. There's not you don't have enough chemicals or like oh god what do you call it uh, extinguish whatever you want to call it like something like that. So what you do is how do you put it out? You basically create another fire right next to it that sucks the oxygen out of it, which is fueling the fire. Um, and that's what nitroglycerin would do. It creates an explosion that just that immediate just like there's the immediate extinguishing of a, uh, oxygen to the fire would put it out. I uh, I buy that. I mean, from it's not me explained. Not, in the, it's not yeah. explained oh, yeah, in the movie. Not, yeah. I think it's it's maybe one line of dialogue, if that. Is this some? Um, is this like? Is this like? Is this like general knowledge to the average person in the seventies that I'm just like? like spend I think, too much time on. The I think we just. I think we find we have found another reason why this film did not find an audience. I think we just keep <laughs> we just keep finding layers, like much like to go back to Shrek. We just keep peeling back the layers upon layers of why this film never connected with anyone. <laughs> I like well, that because the people walked out of the theater because there was uh, too many foreign language subtitles at the beginning. If they made it through that, they walked out of the theater because there was no magic. And if they made it through that, they walked out of the theater because they went, this is stupid. They're going to put out a fire with a f another explosion. <laughs> uh, well, Pretty you know, much. I. 
that um that that uh i don't know if it's mine or whatever but this like there's like a statue of like some kind of monster at the beginning when the title comes up which is like i would have liked it if they would have at least like passed by some ancient mine ruins to justify that or something <laughs> really and i and i could have uh i could have done with some more uh freedom fighters or insurgents hassling them along the way that was sort of one brief encounter it would have been oh, cool yeah. if they were like chased or something for a while but um that would have made so. That's actually an interesting point. I didn't think about that. That they it would have been interesting if because the movie, the encounter that they have, the movie, it just seems like oh, these are bandits. It could have been just as easy to flesh out that that these are the terrorists that caused the oil well fire, and they're trying to prevent the fire from being put out. If they for some reason knew that that's what these people in these trucks were doing. Yeah, um, I mean, there's one yeah. road, so they would run into them. Yeah, yeah. So I I uh, I had these questions as well, but I didn't do the research. Like I said, I. In the uh, in Roy Scheider's prologue, his car accident causes him to knock over a fire hydrant, and it spouts water in the air continuously. And this is something we're all familiar with. You see it in cartoons, you see it in movies all the time. But I would imagine none of us, and and maybe if you're in the audience, right in. Uh, we've never had the experience of ramming into a fire hydrant with a vehicle. And so I was like, does this really happen? And that's the question I researched. And I'm, I'm uh, give me some leeway here, Zach. I want to go on a, a small tangent about this. Because the answer of do they really spout water continuously? Apparently, yes. But yeah. more recently, there have been designs to prevent this. And that's really was my thing I was getting at. I was like, there if this is the case, there had to be some like safeguard that someone eventually put in place. And the answer is yes, that most modern fire hydrants, this won't happen. But in the 70s, totally, like totally true. There's a reason this exists in media. This will totally happen. And I found this from a lot of sources, but one of the sources I found led me down a crazy rabbit hole. It was firehydrant.org, which says it's the number one fire hydrant information resource. And so I spent too much time on this website. It contains info about everything related to fire hydrants, catalogs of fire hydrant collections, fire hydrant art, which led me to a French artist who takes slices of machinery, which is a whole different conversation. That's really cool. But I found on this website a call to action for anybody to find photograph and document any brand or model of fire hydrant that they don't already have in their database. And they have a large database, so this is going to be a tough one. But in return for doing this, they will give you an at firehydrant.org email address. Oh my God. So my goal is I'm going, I have to do this because Zach, I so badly want to be able to say Harass us at cinemodities at firehydrant.org. <laughs> oh, God. So I'll, I'll, help you, I'll help you out with that. There's, I got to be able to find an old Canada fire hydrant for you that they don't have. Um, I, so this, yeah. I am all about this. Like, I watched this for this recording uh, maybe like two days ago or whatever. Um, but I, I totally went outside in my apartment complex and looked at the fire hydrant like the next day or later in the day. I so, so badly want this email address. So ba so basically the fire hydrant people are Star Wars collectors. Yeah, yeah, there are some uh, I think according to the website in their catalog of fire hydrant collections, there are a handful of people that have more than a hundred fire hydrants in their collection. And that's pretty crazy. Like, where do you keep all that stuff? Like, I know you guys with your Star Wars memorabilia, like that's more self-contained, I would imagine, than a fire hydrant, especially hundreds of them. But it's a, it's but a high that, rollers game. <laughs> yes, exactly. But 
I just want so badly to have a business card with an at firehydrant.org email address on it. I find that to be so wonderful. <laughs> oh, it's great. It's great. Zach so, sounds less amused, but, um, but Zach, 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 Zach not just, amused about most things I'm excited about. <laughs> Zach just like cause he cannot wrap his head around the idea that Rob looks on a fire hydrant kick. Like, I just can't figure out that Rob would be entranced by that. That sounds like something like, like, Rob would be like, Zach, what are you doing? He's right, like, so, what are you doing? All, all right, so, like, uh, totally biased, objective opinion coming coming at you. Uh, what, and my question to you guys is, what is the best scene in the whole movie? And there's a correct answer based on my ignorant opinion. And what, is, <laughs> what do you think that, what do you think that scene that I'm referencing is? Well, I think it has to be, as we just described, the fire hydrant scene. No, no, it's not. <laughs> I, I have to say, it's the uh, the whole suspension bridge scene. I love that scene so much. Uh, that that's that's the thing that gets me in this movie. And that's not to say that I don't like the others. I mean, I love the um the wooden bridge scene where like the the tire breaks through, and they're trying to cross like that. It's not even a bridge; it's like a turn or something. That's great too. But the whole suspension bridge scene, it just it is so enthralling. That's definitely my favorite. Uh, I think the suspension bridge one because it's probably the most creative and like unique and exclusive to like this film. But I think them trying to blow the giant trio up, I think that's a really fun sequence. It's probably the second best in the film, but it's also probably a lot more fun. All right. Well, uh, I I mean, I like you're you're sort of both technically right, but also wrong. Like the <laughs> the tree the tree blowing up the tree blowing up's good. Like the like they're or the the contemporary slow mo bros would be proud. Like just the chunks you see flying in that great uncompressed video. I mean, if you're watching this on DVD, like it would have just turned to mud when that tree blew up because it, it had a nice high frame rate. But there's just little yeah. bits of trees flying everywhere, and the contrast is so high that like that's that is great. Um, the buildup of that scene is yeah. really cool because, well, one, when I watched this the first time and, you know, Roy Scheider's like, I'm going to chop down the entire forest myself. The the first thought I have is you're driving dynamite around, like clearly use the dynamite. And then you kind of get the sense that they're doing that, but it's never really explicitly stated. You're just watching them put everything in motion, like the whole, you know, he cuts out the assassin's pocket to fill it with sand or whatever they fill it with. And it's like we don't really see it explained. We just see it done. And I love that. Yeah. Well, uh, OK, so I'm going to get to the best scene in a second. But one one thing that uh, <clears throat> one thing that I, I found sort of they they just sidestep addressing it because I guess it would have generated a lot of tension with the characters. But once they used some of that and they used a whole they used one. The, the tr each truck had three boxes of dynamite. Mm -hmm. right? They used one whole box to blow up that tree. Which seemed seemed to overkill to me, but I guess that's exactly precisely how much they needed to blow up that tree. I had that same thought um, that I was like, they're using a whole box right. for this. And so, but then my my follow up thought was, well, that's probably easier to move than just an individual stick. I, I and, once again, I don't know a lot about wet yeah. dynamite, but and they're also it, not explosives technicians. They're just guessing. But uh, yeah. <laughs> but but so so the thing is, Roy, so Roy's Roy's truck is first there. So did they take that? box from Roy's truck or the second one because they had to have taken it from the second one or Roy wouldn't have brought enough at the end but if so once one truck doesn't have enough though because they only needed one truck to make it but once the second truck doesn't have enough like you don't want to be that guy with the truck that doesn't have enough because you're like it it doesn't even matter if you make it by yourself because you don't have enough 
I uh, don't I don't they say something like they only need one box or something like that at the I beginning? They, I thought they said they needed one truck to make it, but I thought they needed like all all three. But yeah, I guess um, maybe you're right because Roy only carries one box down there. But I thought they said they needed three. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Once again, write in if you have any experience with yeah. oil fires. Um, yeah. But I'm just saying. Now like I'm also you... thinking they should make this movie where they have to tr- use dynamite to stop water coming out of a knocked over fire hydrant. I would love solution, that. Solution to everything. <laughs> it will burn a hole. It will carterize the ground so that the water stops flowing. Um, but but okay. So but my favorite scene in the whole movie is like and and like obviously like those two uh, like effects shots for lack of a better term are, are are up there but my favorite part of the whole movie is this this the conversation they're having in the bar at the end when the oil company guy uh played by R- ramon bieri i guess is i don't know almost no names are actually said in this movie right yeah like yeah yeah so like there's the oil company guy who's his boss was like well you better deliver that quota or or else we might as well shut down this whole operation now so like he's he 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 meets with roy schrider after he successfully did the delivery gives him his fake documents cuts him a check and then when when the guy from the oil company like cavalierly says to roy that "Eh, maybe i'll give this business another six months i don't it's not really it's not really um, it's not as cool as i thought it was after the ordeal he's been through the idea that this guy's like it's just like a temporary project to him is almost i i like that almost hit me more than the implication that roy was killed a few seconds later the fact that this guy and I mean, it's almost like the it's almost like the black eye at the altar to me. Like it's it's almost so dark. It's funny where it's just like he asked him, he's like, what do you mean? You don't like you, you you're going to get out of the business. And he's like, yeah, I'll g- maybe give it another six months or something. <laughs> I I think after all that he went through, like, that's just like he like like Dominguez lost like 30 percent of his brain cells when he heard that happen. And he was just a, a husk dancing to a jukebox after that point sure sure yeah i i mean that i don't know about you guys that that hit me really hard and um and i i i love the ending to this i don't know i don't know about you guys i i do love the ending as well uh if there's one thing i like in movies it's an unhappy ending and of course there's a little bit of ambiguity in this because we only hear the gunshot and then it fades to black or cuts to black or whatever it is I, my only problem with the ending, and it's not really a problem, it's just something I wish they fleshed out more, is that, of course, the the mobsters show up from the Roy Scheider's prologue to, you know, presumably go after Roy Scheider. The movie doesn't really do anything to set up why they would know he's there. Like, I would have liked something that indicated that Roy Scheider doing this whole job caused the mobsters to know where he is. So there, I, is, there is something that, okay. that shows why he's there that uh that explains why they know he's there and i mean i didn't catch this i didn't like the the internet's the internet is garbage because it's handicapping (laughs) me through watching this film but like apparently his friend who hooked him up with the ticket is with those guys at the end okay so so they they know he's there because of the friend but they don't know he's there for any reason related to the dynamite job theoretically they have his friend at gunpoint getting taking him okay to, okay to them. see my my thought was i really wanted there to be something that because roy Schreider's the only survivor of this this dynamite job that causes him to be found and i thought that would have been a great parallel to where basically you know him doing this whole job and driving this truck 
you know, jostled the dynamite of the mobsters coming after him too much. And, you know, it ba- it would have been a neat parallel where they had to stay still to move the dynamite. And then he had to stay still, you know, in his life to be away from the mobsters and away from his own death. And he caused something to jostle that. I would have liked some parallel there because I thought that would have been a cool thing where it's like, oh, Roy Scheider didn't get blown up by dynamite, but he got blown up by the dynamite that he, you know, planted in his life type of thing. That's that's pretty good. But uh, it, it turns out instead of that, you just really got to be careful when you're shooting mob bosses, brothers in the leg because yeah. they will come after you. <laughs> don't don't knock over mob churches. <laughs> I love that mob church. It's great. <laughs> got to put the office where they least expect it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess. Sure. <laughs> Uh, so I'm trying to think what else is there about this movie that because again this is it's it's not the deepest film ever made I think that's fair to say oh yeah yeah it is it's very much like almost two separate movies like we have all this you know uh, slight if you want to call it character development in the first hour and then the second hour is just an exercise in tension like you're watching people being miserable um, and and I think that's kind of why I like it so much. So, but you know, to each his own. If Zach, if you're looking for some more uh, emotional connection to your character, sure, I'm fine that it's not in here. You know, I just, I just want to see them move wet dynamite. <laughs> so, with that being said, is there anything else about this film? Because I'm trying to think. They're really, like, we've kind of touched upon the themes. Like, do we want to go back to the, the, the carving in the stone that's meant to be the, the quote unquote sorcerer that we see at the very beginning of the film, like that demon face or i didn't think too much of that i i started to think one of the trucks i I, maybe it was the sorcerer i'm not sure but the front view of one of the trucks it has like this really weird grill that almost looks like teeth i thought they were trying to pull some parallel between that that carved stone face and the the front of the truck but it's not really a focus at all and so I, i felt like i was just grasping at stuff there i will say this has some of the best vehicle design i've ever seen in the film Oh yeah, I I love the look of these trucks and all that stuff. And I I did find that um the sound of the trucks that we hear in the movie are distorted uh, tiger and cougar noises, which I think is awesome. Nothing, Chris. <laughs> that I mean, that like I, I it does surprise me that they would that they would take um such liberties with a sound that you'd think the audience would be relatively familiar with, but that would, I I mean, obviously it was handled perfectly well and it gave them a little bit of a ominous, unique sound that blended in quite nicely because Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, if it literally just sounded like a screeching tiger, it would have been weird and annoying and it it (laughs) worked perfectly well. So that that's very interesting to hear. Hmm. Yeah. I I think uh, there's, there's in the truck training or truck tryout montage that we get, um, where I, I love the visual of tying like uh, an alcohol glass with water in it to the dashboard to see how much the truck is uh, shaking. But the last person who like tries out to drive the truck, they don't really know how to use the truck, it seems. And we get this shot from the outside of the truck where there's just a bunch of people in the bed of it and the truck like lurches forward and all the extras go flying. That looked like some of the extras looked like they were smiling, like they were having fun getting thrown around. And I thought that was an interesting kind of out of place shot for the rest of the movie where everybody's miserable all the time. 
Yeah, it's really hard to to direct the faces of a, a wide group sometimes and or actually notice yeah. if a bunch of them were smiling. Because, you know, it's not like it's not like there's a video village where Friedkin's watching this as it goes. Like there was a little bit of reliance on the camera operator who was probably getting thoroughly jostled himself. So you probably didn't see some of those smiling faces. Sure, sure. But I mean, I, I would probably smile a little bit, you know, if I, I didn't have to do it a bunch of times over. If there's one where it's like, OK, you're going to get tossed in a truck, I'd be like, sign me up. You know, it's like an amusement park ride. <laughs> yeah. And, and you do wonder what the arrangement is with like wh- I didn't look what the budget was. But when you when they are shooting in some of these locations, obviously they're casting extras uh, from the general populace. And it give, it obviously like looks right that way, too, for each area. And um and I noticed uh I I heard that in the Jerusalem scene there was like a real bombing around the same time they filmed the bombing uh, there, and apparently there's some shots of like pedestrians that are like leaving an actual bombing in the movie, and which is pretty amazing to me. Yeah. I don't I didn't know you could uh, I mean I didn't. I feel like you wouldn't like it's just stuff like the word travels too fast that you're behaving in that manner to, for, for a shot like that to like make it into a current movie unless it was something from like 10 years earlier that was like properly licensed. You know what I mean? Like that would be like yep. capitalizing in a way that I feel like people would no longer find favorable. Um, but uh, it, it definitely like gives it a sense of realism. And I mean, you look at some of those extras and, and you get the feeling that they have no clue what's that they're in a movie because <laughs> they just look the part. Right. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, so and th- that applies to the South American stuff as well. It's just like it looks so authentic that it's like I don't believe that if you gave that guy direction, he would listen to any of it. oh yeah yeah i'm with you there (laughs) yeah so like that gives it that i mean that just gives it a documentary feel that and uh there's just like you take i don't know there's just something so kinetic and and practical about all the stuff you see happening in this movie that you just take it at face value like i really felt like a couple kids almost got ran over by a truck like it looked (laughs) like it was very close to happening and the bridge it's like has however reinforced it can be like that truck is 45 degrees (laughs) on a bridge yeah like there's a you know they like uh and i mean if you uh, like you said there's there was a whole lot of um pitfalls around filming that sequence and they had to mess with the construction of the bridge a couple times but um you know you just believe some of that action a lot more than you do now like i don't know when the last time i believed action like that where like i actually felt the tension you know it wasn't yeah. it wasn't in fast five and, and i know i know that's <laughs> and i know that's going back quite a few fasts but i'm saying you know like it, it's and and that's a bad example because they're not even trying but like what you when you can just tell something's a little too glossy and the and like and these guys are just first of all they're like i don't think it's a stretch to say they're not none of them are traditionally attractive leading men and it and they're all like covered in sweat and dirt the whole time mm-hmm. and and uh and and when you com- com- combine that with um with just the period it came out and you know there's not like digital nonsense going on you just i i feel like you feel the tension when their lives are at risk so much more palpably than you do now and i don't know if that's once again i don't know if that's just me or if i'm just ruined by the things i've seen lately but i if like when you have that guy popping up through the bridge and the french dude doesn't see him but he's still driving forward it's like definitely keep driving driving forward when you can't see your guide but uh, uh but you know i i like i like, I can't 
it, like it gave me a feeling I can't remember feeling in a long time from watching a film where I actually like felt like this guy might get killed. And it was like engaging to that degree where it actually brought me into it in the way that movies are supposed to work, which I feel like a lot of them don't anymore. Yeah, I absolutely. And and something you said in there, the the documentary feel of this movie was I saw, I totally agree with that. And I wasn't even thinking about that the two times I've watched it. But it totally does feel realistic. And like you just said, and I said earlier, you know, it's if if something else had gone wrong in that suspension bridge sequence, we could very much well be watching a snuff film because it looks so dangerous and it feels so dangerous. And I think with that realism and how drawn I am, I am drawn into this movie I am, I think that's why I really dislike the double exposure and like overlaid shots when Roy Scheider is losing his mind at the very end. Like that definitely took me out of the movie. Yeah. Where I'm yeah. like, no, this is the, the, why are we finally getting, you know, with only like what, five to seven minutes left, we're finally getting something that's totally unrealistic. It would have been just as fine if, you know, Roy Scheider's trying to talk to the hitman guy who's clearly about to die. He's laughing hysterically. And wherever they're driving at nighttime, it looks like an alien planet. It looks it's like it's not like of it's, this world. Yeah. Like it's actually and, purple. It felt yeah. a little bit like the like the end of two thousand and one. Like they wanted it to have a flavor of that, where like he's just like going into another dimension and losing his mind. I didn't like the color being totally unnatural. Like with you, like where it's like this is kind of a left turn for what we experienced yeah. so far. Yeah. But the one the the one part of that sequence I really did like though was when. He's when he's still hearing the assassin laughing, but then he looks down and he's who knows how long he's been dead. Like mm -hmm. I did. I did like that little bit where he's still hearing him crazily laughing and then he looks down and he's been gone for a while. Yeah, that was the one part that really stuck out to me is like I was really like, oh, like, what is this? You know, I, I feel like they could have conveyed him just totally losing his mind without all that, you know, double exposure. And there's like a, there's a few quick flashes of what I didn't frame by frame it or pause it or anything, but it looks like like matte paintings of lightning and stuff in there as well. It was very strange. But then the movie picks me right back up because I love the little reveal of Roy Schneider coming out of the darkness and he's carrying the dynamite, almost asking to be blown up at that point. <laughs> yeah, and the shot the shot of that him sort of silhouetted against that like like funneling oil fire is like that's pretty beautiful. Like I can't argue yes. with that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And I also do like he like I it you can't really tell because it is silhouette, but to me it looks like he runs up with the box of dynamite. He he moves forward a little bit. Like he's not completely in the foreground. He gets into like where it's illuminated a little bit more. And then people come out and take the dynamite from him and they move it kind of back a little bit, like closer to the camera. And so it's like he went a few feet more than he even had to. It, it's, it's that whole end is is very, very interesting to me. Zach, are you glad we discussed this and not uh, Exorcist 2, The Heretic? Because <laughs> that came out uh, just after uh, Star's War as well. Mm. Oh, God, another bonkers sequel. Well, that's the thing. I, 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 it's funny. I wanted to touch upon the ending, but you guys kind of said everything I was thinking. The fact that it just gets it goes right into like Surrealsville so quickly. Mm -hmm. And I get that. It's the true descent into madness, the kind of alien like terrain. I get it. But it's just again, it's another one. Just like it feels like we're just making choices because it felt good in the moment. Sure. Not because it benefited the film as a whole. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I read a little bit about 
uh, Friedkin in general not related to this movie, and apparently, which I didn't really know, and I didn't dig in too much. Friedkin, oh, he was bonkers in the seventies. He'd yeah, still like he fire guns, he'd slap priests. Oh God, he did anything he wanted. <laughs> And he had some, he had some like almost rivalry slash feud slash like jealousy thing of Coppola and Apocalypse Now or something like that. And it definitely seems to me like that Roy Scheider with the whole double exposure shots is something trying to be similar to, you know, that opening scene in the hotel room of Apocalypse Now, even though my timeline might not be completely correct there. But I, I, if I look more into Friedkin, I'm sure I'd get the sense of, you know, he was just totally bonkers. And, and I get where you're coming from. Like you said earlier, he's doing things just because he can he can do them or he wants to throw them in or things of that nature. Um, so. So, yeah, I'm not I don't really know much about Friedkin in general. Um, I've, of course, I've seen the French Connection. I've seen The Exorcist. I've, I love The Exorcist. I don't really like The French Connection. I don't think I understood it the time I saw it, which was so many years ago. Um, but this one I'm totally on board with. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a very odd film. It's one of those movies that I think it'd be hard for us to find someone who'd say it's their favorite. Mm-hmm. It has it's, it has a very specific spot carved out in film history for it, and I think that's kind of where it begins and ends. And I don't even know if you'd call this a cult. I guess it's a cult film, but like it's very limited. Like it's there. Like I think it's kind of funny that like God seven years ago. This film was almost impossible to find. Yeah. And now, like, it's available on, like, a half a dozen str- – like, it's not available to stream. You just have to purchase this. It's not streaming anywhere. But it's available on many, like, digital rental platforms. Yeah. And, I find- and that goes back to, like, again, once again, like, we've talked about this a lot when it came to, like, Eraserhead, where it was the idea that, like, some of the charm and mystique of these films is the fact, like, you kind of had to, like, go out of your way to find them. Mm-hmm. And now that like literally that everything is just so easily available kind of takes the fun out of it, or at least some of the fun. Sure. The only, the only way I'd push back on that is the fact that I didn't know it existed until a couple days ago. And it like, it took something like this to sort of motivate me to like you, it's called sorcerer and you know what it's about. Like, where would you, if you had no context, it's almost like, where would you begin to even find out about that? You know what I mean? I guess if you're, if you're looking up Friedkin's, uh, resume and watching everything you'd come across it but other than that i just had no clue about it and 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 i mean and and i think that i mean it's something like it has a feeling to me where it's like it's almost like just because it there's nothing uh narratively implausible and like it just all ends in misery it it rings like it could be almost a true story to me and i think that it's sort of i think it's so compelling to me be just in the same way that like like when you like you know it's a fad lately to have these true these true crime documentaries and with remakes and uh, reenactments and and uh following along the the story of all these miserable things that actually happen to people in real life and this just feels so tangible and like 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 plausible and like this probably did actually happen to some varying degree you know what i mean sure. and and it, and, it, and it just ends in an absolute nightmare for these people who made poor choices all their lives which it often does for a lot of people every day it, it it's something just rings super true about it to me and it's uh i i don't know it i like i found the ending really powerful just because it's like it's just it it's 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 almost like it's everyone it's it's everyone and it's uh i mean we're not all uh mobsters and assassins and all that but it's sort of like it's it it feels like so universally applicable Mm -hmm. in the end 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, I'm glad you bring up the, you know, making terrible choices. Uh, according to Wikipedia, this movie is a favorite of Benjamin Safdie. And I've described the Safdie oh, Brothers boy. movies before as watching people make terrible choices. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what, and also, I mean, apparently it's... Uh, yeah, your your favorite uh, author guys, uh, Stephen King's favorite movie too. Yes, oh yeah, I saw that. Yep. <laughs> well, Robert, so that's probably why you don't like it. Robert, we gonna talk about the soundtrack to this film? Oh, uh, Tangerine Dream. Oh yeah, love me a Tangerine Dream, and I I think that's another thing that um you know we don't talk about it too much. We talk about more movies that are ahead of their time. I think this Tangerine Dream score for this type of movie is definitely ahead of its time. And I think you know then what nine years later Michael Mann starts to use that synth stuff a lot, and people are like, "What the hell are we watching?" You know. But I I love it. I'm so on board with any Tangerine Dream just in general. <laughs> It did. The soundtrack did feel a little ahead of its time for me. It's like usually when you get 70s synths, there's something mildly comedic about them. And I, I, it never made me laugh once. So I think that it was a it was a success. It was ahead of its time. It reminded yeah. me a lot of the Blade Runner score, like the Vangelis. Like it gave oh, me a lot of that. OK, that like not okay. the same, but still like in that yeah, vein, like yeah. predecessor to that. Sure, sure. No, I, I dig it. And I think this movie succeeds by with the score by using it fairly sparingly. Like there is a lot of the tensions, tension based scenes or tension drenched scenes, I should say, that is just like, you know, the noise of the trucks and whatever they're driving on creaking and stuff like that, where it's not just mired in synth while they're doing all this stuff. It's used appropriately, I would say. Yeah, it's there's a lot of scenes without there's a lot of scenes without score. Yeah, and that's yeah. and it's used appropriately. Like like when we see the what the uh, the fire, just like kind of like billowing from the ground, and we have it just kind of like playing under like over it. I'm like, oh, that's neat. Like that's mm -hmm. a very haunting visual combined with the uh, score. Yeah, absolutely. And this was one of the early Tangerine Dream scores, or at least one of the ones that got them more into the mainstream of scoring movies. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't think this movie was responsible for that. Their rise to, you know, uh, some sense of stardom, but at least it got them off the ground. So that's a good thing. <laughs> hey, this film did something right. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned it before, Zach, that this is a, a obscure or, you know, I don't even know if we would go far as say like cult status. It definitely has some notoriety, but like you said, it's not one anybody's going to say that it's their favorite or anything. I was definitely getting kind of the sense of that, you know, with with how obscure it is, how I didn't really know about it for a few months ago. Now Chris said he's never heard of it. Like it it and with the director behind it and stuff like that. It's it drew some parallels for me to Frankenheimer's Seconds, where it's like I'd never heard of this. I watch it from this acclaimed director because Seconds, I'm pretty sure, was after Manchurian Candidate. And then it's like, oh, this is almost like an undiscovered gem of that director's career. Did you get any Seconds vibes from this in that sense? Oh, I mean, of uh, course, we could say they are basically the same movie. I mean, there's dynamite in both of them. But <laughs> well, I think it has to deal with protagonists that are miserable. But yep, um, yep. no, I, I get that as like as like a weird underground film by a prolific filmmaker at the time. Yeah. Um, I can see it there kind of on paper, but not in the actual films themselves. Okay. Yeah, sure. I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, and, and of course, Frankenheimer goes on eventually to direct uh, French Connection 2. So another connection between Frankenheimer really? and... Yeah, yeah, in, in 75. So before um, Interesting. Sorcerer comes out, he directs... Interesting, interesting. Too, yeah. How about and, you that? know, 
and uh, and I mean this has been this has been stated to death the whole um the whole seventies rating system thing. But when you think about the fact that this is rated PG, it's it just shows you how misguided we still are to this day. Like there's more there's more like sort of existential angst and darkness and misery and 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 in this that that's the stuff we should really be sheltering kids from like you know what i mean like the, <laughs> a, a few minutes of this will could impact your whole worldview as a child this has the same rating as star wars did you know one is one is uh, one is basically uh, like it, it feels more the original star wars feels more like a disney movie to me all the time and you compare that to this with the same rating and it's amazing that it took until temple of doom for pg-13 to be invented because like this like a mat there there were there must have been loads of children who sat there. i mean only five people saw it but like two two out of five must have been kids like this is like crazy to me that this is on the same plane as that and they sort of hadn't drawn that line in the sand like there was it, like there was you can just tell there was this attitude at the time that this is a film that people can enjoy and we're not going <laughs> to narrow it down to the point where the the parents can't go unless they find a babysitter like the the kids are if they're not interested they're not going to watch it it's just it's i don't know it's just crazy to me that with all the stuff that goes on in this movie that that's what it was rated but just because they had a there the scale was so limited at the time but the fact that there's no distinction between those two movies ratings wise is hilarious to me but from my understanding, and not to make it like we could go th- go down a very deep rabbit's hole when it comes to like the MPAA. The thing about the MPAA is that like it's always been more of like a reflection on the like uh, their explanation has been as to why some films get certain ratings and others don't is that it's a reflection of the values of the time. So that's where they're like, oh, that's why we were much more strict on movies in the 80s than we were in the 70s. is because values were much looser in the 70s than they were in the 80s. Yeah, it was, yeah well, well, uh, well, you know, I, I wouldn't... That's probably... I mean, that's probably true, but I feel like there you could be... You could have... They could have a more nuanced perspective where it's like, no, we just liked keeping the doors open for compelling narratives back then instead of limiting like anything rated PG is today is so much more basic, like in terms of its ideas and construction than this, that it's just like mind blowing. Like there's like, there's not PG movies that are properly made for adults to appreciate anymore. I don't think there are like, this is, this is, this is meant for adults to appreciate. You know what I mean? Like it, that it's just, it's a, such a different environment in terms of the construction of entertainment. I don't think seventies people were these maniacs without values. I just think they understood what a movie was. Fair. Fair. I like that. Maniacs without values. <laughs> I think that was Rob's uh, senior superlative back in high school. Oh, now I want maniacs without values at firehydrant.org. <laughs> All right. Anything else about this film? Are you ready to wrap up our uh, May Fourth discussion? Uh, I think that's. I think that's all I had. I think we covered uh, everything. It's a. It's a good one. I don't know where you can check it out. I don't know if I'm sure this is one of those like you can rent it for three bucks or four on Amazon Prime. But if you have a way to see it, definitely check it out. And then tune in next year when we will either do Red Tails or Naked Lunch. I think that's what we set up. <laughs> oh yes. Look forward to. We still got to do THX at some point. Benway. <laughs> no, THX would be good. And then um, 
American Graffiti, of course. And then yes. all your all you guys have already done your other Lucas Stars Wars, so we can just stick to the other ones he's directed. And I mean, what would we ever do? Radio Land Murders, even though he's not the director of that. Oh God! Only after Howard the Duck. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. All righty, Chris. Anything else about Sorcerer? Uh, you know, it's it might be a. And you guys have probably talked about this, but it might be nice to give people a heads up to be like, we're we're going to talk about this movie. It's brilliant. It's full of darkness and horrible things. You should probably watch it before we tell you all about it. I don't know. I mean, you guys have probably thought about that, but um, I, I think that despite if you did listen to us talk about it and you're, you're spoiler alerted that the storm is caused by helicopters, still watch <laughs> it anyway. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, from a cinematography standpoint, you have these helicopter shots where they're flying super close between down these valleys and through the jungle and like risking crashing helicopters, which is like always fun. And um, that's Johnny Landis. He knows all about <laughs> crashing helicopters. <laughs> exactly. And, every, and it's like the opening shot shot of the, the, the Shining where, where, you know, that helicopter gets really close to that car. It's just like anytime you see a risky move with a helicopter from from that period, it's it's beautiful. And because, you know, they actually did it and there's no messing around. So check it out. A lot of real crazy stuff happens in it from a cinematography standpoint. And it, it's beautiful. And what what world would we live in if Star Wars came out a couple months later than it did? We'll never know. Indeed, sir. Indeed. All right. So conclude this episode of the Knights of Vader, a Star Wars podcast. Check out the Facebook group. Types of, type Knights of Vader in the Facebook. And chances are you will find Chris Porteous sharing pictures of weird bootleg books he's finding. <laughs> uh, if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you're currently listening to us on. Thank you to Anspiriority Complex for providing our theme song. You're welcome. Check out the show notes to hear more from them. If you're interested more in hearing from Rob and I, you can check out the Cinemalities podcast where Rob and I will be discussing. I've been waiting. Or have just discussed. I've been waiting this whole episode to get to say this. Show me the mummy. <laughs> we are talking about Brendan Fraser's The Mummy and The Mummy Returns in our 2001 Fort year. And uh, we want you all to head over and listen to that episode of Cinemodities and let Zach know if we successfully showed you The Mummy. <laughs> Show me The Mummy. Show all me right, The Mummy. <laughs> Alrighty, Chris, when you are not finding, I'm trying to think, what was, what was the last thing you were getting involved with in the Star Wars Facebook group besides uh, the the book, the weird-ass book? I don't what know. The... I get notification like every 30 minutes that you posted something else in listen, there, Chris. <laughs> listen, first of all, you gotta, you know, I knew that you guys were going to put out this episode for those guys, and they're going to be like, what are these dudes talking about? So I did try and share a little bit of actual Star Wars content on on this this the commercial christmas of star wars may the 4th which is not a real thing but neither is christmas and and uh you know i tried to share some real star wars stuff in there but you, you can find me in there uh um and definitely watch sorcerer and listen to cinemodities because it's like this but a little bit better whoa we are yeah, throwing I, shade on I'm talking about this Vader. episode it's like this episode but a little bit better this is it's not this nice episode but 100 percent less chris porteous yeah exactly except 100 more cursing except on, <laughs> except on a couple occasions where we talked about starship troopers and trading places 
I, yeah. I do have to mention, Chris, I'm glad you say that you tried to share a little, some more Star Wars related stuff in the Knights of Vader Facebook group, especially that little tidbit about keeping up with the Kardashians coming to an end. That's definitely my top of my brain of Star Star Wars information. I know my, I know my audience. <laughs> what? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, God. Alrighty, folks. Good night, but not goodbye. And as always, Fenway. May the sorcerer be with you.